We certainly want to give our thanks to the Zig Choir for the rendition of an old classic hymn. Let's give God some praise for the singing of an old hymn. Amen. Would you join me in the book of Acts, chapter 5? The book of Acts, chapter 5. And I want to read verses 12 through 16. The book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 12. Through 16. Word of the Lord, Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. You will notice on the front of our program, of course, our new theme for the year is the Year of the Warrior. And it is based upon the warrior-like image of Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 17. And the same image, of course, that Paul borrows and reflects in his own writing in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Now, normally, the sermon of the first Sunday of the year would be an exposition on what the theme is as motivation for the remaining of the year. However, this Sunday, I felt the importance that there is something far more critical and of immediate attention that we certainly want to spend some time with this morning, being more pointed than the theme itself, although I will get to exposing and giving exegetical points in terms of what the theme means in the week to come. But today is going to be the driving objective, you know, every year, I would think that not only each of us, but every organization comes up with some goals and objectives. I only have one that I hope that we can accomplish for Greater Little Zion this year, just one. So that simplifies matters, one goal. And that is that we have to understand and execute evangelism. We've got to understand and execute evangelism. Simplified. We got to get some folk in this house and we got to share the gospel and bring some people to salvation. Now, for those of you who are, are certainly involved in the intricles and the particulars of how things are executed, God bless you. You go ahead and work that out. But for me, it's just one objective. We have got to evangelize, share the message so that we can bring people into the house of God. And so I've entitled the text this morning from Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, We've Got Some Work to Do. That's our title this morning, We Got Some Work to Do. So moving from the theme of last year, the year of self-worth, to the year of the warrior is fitting as a thematic gesture as I have envisioned for the last couple of years as we move forward. 
In the idea of self-worth, I fought to focus on the critical aspect of what it means to see one's dignity in oneself based upon the interpretation of scripture. What that did was at least allowed me to be exposed to people's struggles regarding how they see themselves as worthy individuals relationally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, and economically. It wasn't surprising, but frustrating to witness Christians who struggle with grasping the idea of self-worth as it is perpetuated throughout scripture and particularly in Philippians chapter 4 verses 8 and 9. But as one member reminded me as we shared through the course of the year after that person revitalized themselves and reconstructed their life and repositioned it as well, their next question was both piercing and yet pointed saying to me, so what's next, pastor? Once I realize that I've got to reimagine myself and I've got to reposition uh, myself and rework myself and reconstruct myself, what's next and then at what cost do I expend moving forward? And what will it take for me to leave behind the scars and the tears and the disappointments and the troubles of 2017 and move ahead toward progress in 2018. As simple as we preachers often convey that that progress is simply a matter of reading scripture, a matter of praying, a matter of initiating faith initiatives, a matter of jumping through a number of spiritual hoops is actually not quite that simple. In fact, you may very well could be involved in the fight of your life in 2018. It's not quite that simple because you are not only going to be very well involved in the fight of your life, but it is critical that you now begin to embrace and put on a warrior mentality and get prepared to fight for your progress, to fight for your change and fight for your family and fight for your marriage and fight for those relationships and fight for your sanity and fight for your spiritual health, your physical health and your emotional health because Jesus warned us that there is a thief on the prowl who is interested in stealing from you and killing you and destroying you and Peter warned that that same thief disguised himself as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The same holds true for us as a congregation entity who's interested in transformation and growth. Hear me clearly that discipleship doesn't just happen because I encourage through the word that we need to be making disciples. Growth doesn't just happen because we are praying for growth. Love doesn't just permeate and circulate among us because we say we want it and we know we need it. We must fight for those kinds of changes among us in the midst of our congregation because just as there are those who want change, who want growth, there are also those who resist growth. Resist it because they fear that they're going to lose something in the process of change. There are those also who resist it because they fear simply nothing more than fear as it is attached to change. Because the church is a spiritual entity, there are spiritual attacks and spiritual battles that we're going to have to engage in. In fact, we don't have to voluntarily engage. They're going to come to us, but some of them will be for the sake of hindering and prohibiting growth, making it a necessity that you and I become spiritual warriors 
in order to succeed. Let me tell you what Luke is trying to tell us in Acts chapter 5, that there should be a fear among us for lying to ourselves and then lying to God. Watch this now. It's amazing how Luke set this text up in terms of the chronology of the narrative because when you go back and read the book of Acts in its beginning, it's a strange but yet pointed journey. In chapter 1, there is the architectural direction by God that the church has its initiative to be evangelistic by telling the disciples or the apostles to wait in the upper room and they're going to receive power. So there's a promise at the outset. Secondly, in Acts chapter 2, there is the provision of that promise and they are anointed by the power of God from on high and something overwhelmingly and spiritually happens that when we get to Acts chapter 2, the church is empowered with an incredible amount of power that they're able to go out and in chapter 3 demonstrate what that power means. So we meet the man who's been sitting at the gate of a church for many years and people in the church just stepped over him not realizing that they now encompass the power to change this man's life. It's Peter and John who exercise the authority that they have to change a man's life so much so that when they reaches out their hands, evangelism, and catches the man where he is, evangelism, in the context of his brokenness in evangelism, and reach out and lift the man up and speak the word evangelism and tell the man in the name of Jesus, rise up and the man leaps up and the Bible says his ankles get strength and he runs back into the church praising God evangelism, which means that we just can't preach here in the house, but we got to go out and tell somebody, take the message to where they are to show them that God loves them, God cares about them, and you and I have the message. They may not come to church, but if we go there where they are, we might can show them in the word how God loves them and change them and bring them to the church. In fact, this man stopped by the church looking for house, looking for help, but nobody would help him in the house. And when Peter and John reaches out to help him, when the man runs back in the church full of joy, people say, is that he who used to sit by the gate? Yep, the same one that we pass every single Sunday coming in the church. Now that man is in the church all because God is trying to show us the church ultimate goal is to evangelize, to share the message so that folk will know who Jesus Christ is and why he can become their savior. Then in Acts chapter 4, the church experiences its first persecution by seeing Peter, James, and John being arrested and being challenged because they preach the word of God. But notice what happens. If you read the ending of chapter 4, the people began to pray and the people began to seek the face of God. And verse 31 says that when they start praying, the house was shaken, which means that we not only got to evangelize, but we got to see the importance of praying so that God can shake some things up in us, but shake some things around us so we can recognize you can't move in the power of God unless God moves inside of you. And so we get to Acts chapter 5 and the text takes a strange shift because all of this power that's being experienced in chapter 4 is now met as you look at the close of chapter 4, where they began to join so much together as one that they started to sell their property with the whole idea of contributing to the community, making sure that their local church meets the needs of their local membership. And in the giving, God provided for them opportunities to be able to harness property and then sell it. Read the text. It says there was a man there by the name of Barnabas who sold his property as well and gave. But then in chapter 5 it says there is a man and his wife named Ananias and Sapphira. And the Peter says that the Spirit of God shows up and says... Why have you lied? Now watch what the text says. It says when they sold their property, rather than to give as they should have given, 
they decided to hold back some for themselves. And when the Spirit asked them, did you actually do this? They actually lied and said, no, we did not do this. In fact, we thought, we argued that we gave what we know we needed to give. And the Bible says they died right there on the spot. There is a suggesting unto us that there is a fear that should exist in us when we start lying to ourselves and lying to the Spirit of God. Those first 11 verses tell us what happened to Ananias and Sapphira when they were dishonest in regard, watch this, to their commitment to God. They were dishonest about their commitment to God. And Peter raises two questions to Ananias. Watch what he says in verse 3 of chapter 5. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then another question in verse 4. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Peter points his finger at something specific. You have thought this thing out thoroughly, says Peter, and you've decided to lie to yourself and then tell a lie to God. Would you consider with me that our failure to evangelize to others could very well be our own mode of self-deception and unfaithfulness to the command of God? Remember what we're told in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and in Mark 16, 15? To go out and to share the gospel with all nations, all people, as Mark says, making disciples, teaching them what I have commanded you, making disciples, teaching them what I have commanded you, making disciples, and teaching them what I have commanded you, making disciples, and teaching them what I have commanded you, sharing the gospel with all nations, converting sinners to saints, but training disciples to be able to disciple others. What if our repercussions for failing to carry out that assignment reflected and happened in the same manner that it happened to Ananias and Sapphira. What if when we fail to do what God told us to do, we end up falling down and breathing our last breath? I am convinced that every time we have a funeral, it's a warning and a wake-up call that not only is time winding up, but not only is there uncertainty of when we will breathe our last breath, but it's also a warning to encourage us to complete the assignment you have been given in regard to evangelism. Notice what Peter identifies. Notice who Peter identifies as the instigator of keeping us from doing what we are told to do by God. Satan. Look at verse 3. Satan. Satan has filled your heart. A deeper question by me to Peter would have been, why didn't you ask, why did you let Satan get in your heart in the first place? Uh-huh. And so now we are wrestling with this idea of what does it mean to evangelize and something should happen to us every time we hear or witness a funeral. Something should happen to us. Notice what happened to the church. All that growth that it has in chapter 2. All that power that it gets in chapter 3. All that authority even through persecution that it experienced as it comes to chapter 4. And now that we are in chapter 5. Notice what happens when these two deaths occur in the church. Look at verse 11. It says great fear came upon not a fraction of the church, not the deacon's ministry or the pastor or the trustees or the choirs or the cancer support ministry. Look at the text. 
It says, after hearing the death of Ananias and Sapphira, fear came upon the whole church. That meant that that church recognized when death occurs, it's a wake-up call that we need to be about our business because we got much work to do and God is reminding us every time somebody dies among us, I'm getting closer to your name. I'm getting closer to your time. You need to be about my business. Don't look as if you're going to be here tomorrow because you just don't know. I'm getting closer, says God, more and more. The text says that fear came in and out of the church. Look at the text. And upon all who heard of these things, not just in the church, but even when death occurs, people outside the church realize something is happening to life. Life is not permanent life may not be long life can be short and I must now take advantage of every opportunity and if there's an assignment upon my life I got to get it done and here it is here it is right here in the text when fear came upon that church it opened their eyes and it opened their minds that evangelism they had to embrace it is not just a work for the preacher but it's a work also for the parishioner that everyone is involved in the work of evangelism. That's why our mission statement is to, our vision statement, I'm sorry, is to reach the unsaved with the saving message of Christ. It never changes. It can't change. It cannot change. I'm sorry. You never change your vision because the church only has one vision. That's to reach the loss. The church only has one mission. That's why our mission never changes. And the mission is to lead everyone to a full life of development in Christ. That doesn't change because once you bring them into the house... Now you got to develop them as disciples of Christ. You got to help them grow in their spirituality. What happened in this story between Acts 5 verse 1 through 11 gave birth to what we call growth evangelism in verses 12 through 16. But before I give you exposition of that text, listen to the burden of evangelism and the suggestion that we have so much work to do as Paul conveys in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 28. L listen to what Paul says because I, I want you to hear the imperativeness that comes from Paul that says that your ultimate goal as a Christian is to share the message of Christ. Not to get a new car in a new house. Oh, that stuff is byproduct. That, that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to share the gospel so that the church community grows to a community that understands the hurting and the needed and has a message of healing for those who need healing. Listen to what Paul says. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. And... We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ, verse 29. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. L listen to what Paul says. Paul says we proclaim him Christ. Which, understand, when you evangelize, you can share your story, but your story has to be inclusive of his story. Let me say that again. You can share your story, but your story has to be inclusive of his story. 
because your story should reflect how his story now influences your story to the point where you want to help someone else develop their story that we will come about being able to preach our story which will be able to go out and share the story with everyone who now knows that he is the one who changed my life and as a result I now have a burden to tell somebody about the goodness of the Lord and how God saved me looked beyond my fault and saw my need restored me and changed my life and now I got hope and now I got joy and no life didn't change overnight but now I got somebody I know who walks with me and who talks with me and who encourages me I gotta tell my story but I gotta have his story in my story there it is right there says Paul and look what Paul does he says in sharing that story that look what he says that I got to proclaim him Christ him in my story but notice the repetition of a phrase look what he says admonishing highlight every man and teaching highlight every man with all wisdom that we may present highlight every man complete in Christ Therein lies our mission, leading everyone to a full life of development in Christ. But look what he says, every man, everybody I come in contact with, I got to drop a hint about the saving grace of God. Not the prosperity of God. but the saving grace. Because Paul is arguing your prosperity is only temporal. Okay? Have you ever noticed that I've done enough funerals to know when we bring them down and lay them at this altar I never see a house traveling behind I never see their car traveling behind I never see a U-Haul full of all their clothes following us to the graveyard. I've done enough funerals to know that when we go to the gravesite and when we are ready to lower them six feet below, when I say ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that life that we once knew, that's what it's going back to. Their Bentley, their Mercedes, their Cadillac, their house, their clothes, their designer stuff, their job, none of that is going with them to the next life. And so Paul says the priority is share with them the gospel because they need to make plans now for where they're going to live later. Because you can drive a Bentley and still go to hell or heaven. It's a choice. You can live in a $10 million mansion and still go to hell or heaven. It's a choice. And so Paul is trying to tell us that you got to share the gospel with every man. Watch this. He says in verse 29, Continue with that significant wording. Look what he says. And for this purpose, here it is, talking about evangelism. For this purpose, for this purpose, sharing the gospel with every man, I labor, striving according to his power. Now Paul says, in sharing your message, you ain't got the power to save a single individual. You couldn't save a net if your life depended on it. So Paul says, highlight, I'm working under the power and the inspiration of the Spirit. That's why when you go back to Acts chapter 3, that man sat at the gate and they passed over him because they didn't know what to work with. They were trying to save the man in their own power. And that's the reason why we have weak churches. Because we think that church power rest in the way that we are organized and I'm here to tell you you can have the best organizational organized church you want if you ain't got the anointing of the spirit of God you just got a pretty church that has no authority no power to do missions to do ministry
why Paul says, I'm laboring, I'm going to break this down for you, according to his power, look at that, which mightily works within me. Paul now is trying to tell you, so understand evangelism ain't just a one-person dimensional work. However, everyone has a responsibility in evangelism. But you can't do it unless the Spirit of God is working in you. In other words, Paul is saying, here's a challenge. If you say it's not, then there's something wrong with your relationship with Christ. Because he argues, if you don't want to share your message, then you got a weakness somewhere. And wherever that weakness is, you need to face it, admit it, challenge it, and change it. Because your job as a disciple of Christ is to make more disciples. And you can't do it unless the Spirit of God is alive in you. And one reason why we don't share the message is because we don't have the power living in us. Yeah. We're walking in flesh. That's why we argue so much in church about what I want. That's why we argue like that. Because we have not recognized what does the... Have you ever... Listen, when we get into these arguments in church, have you noticed we rarely say, what does the Scripture say? But we say, what does the Constitution say? Or what does the policy say? I don't give a hoot about your Constitution or your policy. The question is, what does the Word of God say? And that's what you don't want to deal with because that means you can't argue with each other. You got to argue with God. And who has the sense to attempt to argue with God? So I'd rather argue with you. Because I just might win the argument if I argue with you. But I ain't arguing with God. Why? Because whatever happened to Ananias and Sapphira just might happen to me if I decide to argue with God. That's why we're weak. We're weak because we're absent of the word and we're weak because we won't pray together. That's why we got empty pews. Because we don't want to address the reality. We raise so much hell secretly, but yet God brings it out openly. So you ain't getting no increase until you first recognize to one another you've been damaging each other and hurting each other. Talk, chatter behind each other's back and then smile on Sunday morning in worship. Walk past each other and won't even hint to speak and yet we're going to get in church and holler how we love the Lord Jesus Christ so we're back to Ananias and Sapphira you are lying to yourself and then you turn around and lie unto God Lord we love everybody and we just want the love to permeate among us the devil is a liar that's just hell speaking right through you and that's why you got, I, I hate to have to tell you this on a Sunday morning, the first Sunday of the year of all, all Sunday, but that's why you got empty pews. Because you don't want to learn how to evangelize. You just want to come to church, get your church on, go home, not even think about how we can build the fellowship that we might save some folk. Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees on one, on one occasion, the things you ought to have done, you left that undone. But the stuff that don't amount to nothing, you seem to specialize in that. And that's the reason why we got empty pews. We have a declining congregation because we fail to look and realize practical stuff. If you don't make transition and change, you're going to die right where you're standing. Read 2 Kings chapter 7. Those four lepers realize we got one or two choices. We can stay right here, and if we stay right here, we know we're going to die. But if we launch out into the city, we never know what we might find. And when they got in town, what did they find? They thought they were going to find an enemy there ready to destroy them. God had already came through and brought a sound of a rushing army that scared the whole town to death and everybody left when they got there all the food that they needed was right there and then notice what they said read second king seven they said listen even though we found this new freedom we can't keep it to ourselves we got to go back and tell everybody in town what we have found so they too can receive the same salvation that we have 
got to start telling your story inclusive of his story because there is somebody next to you who want to know how do they develop their own story. But you can't do it if you don't learn how to evangelize. And I ain't coming to you. You're going to have to come here to get it. So look what Paul says. He says, I labor, meaning I toil, I grow weary. That's the Greek word he used. I grow weary. I exhaust myself. Now listen to what Paul's saying. I put the burden of soul winning on my heart where I exhaust myself because I want to see somebody brought to Christ. Do we have that kind of burden? Do you have that kind of burden? Look what he says. I strive. That's an athletic term. It means that as an athlete in preparation, I labor, I push, I push myself to the point where I'm almost exhausted because I'm wanting to win. Wanting to win when I've already won? Yes, but you can't experience it until you get into the fight. That's why you got to have a warrior mentality. The power the dunamis that works within me, that works, that's the Greek word, it means that's divine energy that's driving me. And Paul's trying to tell us in that text that evangelism is hard work, but it requires that Christ-driven commitment to see the lost saved and then to see the saved discipled. And that's another weakness we have. We don't want to be discipled. You think you already know all there is to know in scripture or you just don't want to know. Some people don't want to know because if they know more, that means more will be required of them. And if more is required of me, that means I got to do more and I already got enough to do from my life as it is. And I can, just tell, I can tell you how to, to rationalize with that or how to work with that. Just think about no matter how busy your life is, who gave you your life? Who sustains your life? Who gives you what you need in terms of life? See, we got we to stop this one to shout and stay shouting all the time. Not realize you got to come back down to reality. You can't have Sunday every day. You can, but you better come back down to Monday. Because Monday is where the real world takes place, baby. You ever notice that you can come to church and have a good time and shout yourself the glory and then walk right out of church and stop by the restaurant and find some demonic presence standing right behind that counter looking at you, challenging you, and you got to figure out, how am I going to respond? Am I going to cuss this individual out? Or am I going to display the godlike spirit and just know that this is just a temporary moment? And if that ain't enough, get ready to go to work on Monday morning and get to work and realize all that demonic stuff you thought you had bound back there at church on Sunday is right there at your job on Monday morning. And it rises up to the occasion. And it don't just stay for a few minutes for the entire eight to ten hours that you there at work. And then if that weren't enough, when you got in the car on your way home, some ding-dong decides to cut you off on I-95 and there that demonic spirit rises. Do you see what I'm saying? You can be high on Sunday, but you got to come back down to Monday at some point in time. That's why you got to be discipled. See, because if without discipleship, you end up doing what you used to do before you got saved. Thank you, my brother. Because there's some folk don't realize, here's a way to know that you've been born again. When you get into one of them moments, and that old man rises to the moment. Now see here, this is, this is what this person needs right here. Just what we used to do back in the hood. This, that's what they need. That's how you shut that down. But the spirit of God says, no, we don't, we don't do that no more. There's a better way. There's a better way. See, that's how you know. You've been born again. That's why, that's why some of us, we really got to look at ourselves. Hey, listen, the writer of Hebrews says you need to check out to make sure you are saved because some folk think they saved, ain't got no salvation at all. They just pretending and don't even know they pretending. So Paul says we got to harness this energy, this urgency, and this fire. I'm going to get back to the text of Acts 5. And warn and witness the lost individual in the same spirit. As the late Richard Baxter, the Puritan preacher who used to say, I preach as never to preach again. 
That's not to you, that's to me. He says to me, preach like you ain't going to get another chance. To, this is your last shot. This is it. He says, I preach as never going to preach again as a dying man to dying men. With that kind of burden, there's an urgency in the fire. Or as the late R.G. Lee used to say, check this out. If I had not been afraid of hell, I do not think I would have started for heaven. Now that's deep. Somebody told him that there's a darker spot than where you currently are. That's evangelism. And he started for glory. So, what do we see according to Acts chapter 5? I know I got to let you go. Verse 12 through 16. What's happening? Practical evangelism helps us realize that we got still much work to do in the church. Notice what those deaths did to that growing congregation in Jerusalem. It gave birth to imparted characteristics and established for us that biblical pattern of evangelism. But watch this. Watch these characteristics. I'm not going to get to the evangelism piece. I'm going to get to the characteristics. Watch this. Look at verse 12. What that death did was birth, number one, revelation. Look at the text. It gave revelation to where they were and where they needed to go. Look at what it says. Signs and wonders were being done among the people by the apostles. And they were all on one accord in Solomon's portico. That just simply means they were all on one accord in the space where they worshipped and had prayer. Now watch this. Simplified. Can't get no simpler than this. Can I tell you what it really means? That death scared the you-know-what out of them. And they got themselves together. And I just wonder sometimes, do we really see what happens when someone dies among us? It's a call to get yourself together. Look what it did. It gave them revelation. I mean, look what God did. He was doing signs and wonders among them. Now, he did then what had to be done because they had no revealed text. So you may not see signs and wonders in the form that happened in the apostles then, now, but here is what you will see. The fulfillment of God's revelation right here in the written word. In other words, we don't see the word come to pass because we don't have a revelation. We don't have a vision in terms of what the word says. We only see with our narrow eyes, not understanding, God purposely positions the church to be in a vulnerable space so that they can trust God in their vulnerability that they might discover their strength and their weakness. So even when you look and see these small numbers of people present but empty pews it's not necessarily a posture of defeat it could be a position of deliverance if we would allow ourselves to see through the revelation of God something happens when the people of God get a hold of the word of God and start praying the word of God itself there it is right there it says that they were so moved that they came on one accord. That wasn't enough. Look at verse 13. They had such a revelation that depicted itself. What did God do? God strengthened their reputation. Look at what verse 13 says. Verse 13 says, but none of the rest dare associate with them. You know what happens? That meant that in the process of that death, and that revelation, God purged the church of those who weren't going to get themselves together. Okay, y'all not getting it. So watch this. So that's the reason why some people need to go. Some people got to go. Because no matter what you do, if it ain't their way, they don't think it's, it's, it's just the way to, the place to be and they don't want to be a part of it. Good. Get gone. Because all you're going to do is be a cancer. That's all you're going to do. You're going to be a cancer and you're going to spread your bad attitude and your negativity. 
and your criticism, you're just going to spread it through the whole church. And listen, even the best of a Christian, if they listen to you long enough, you'll influence them. If they aren't strong enough, look at the text. Look at verse 13. The rest of them wouldn't associate with them. That meant that they distanced themselves, realized this ain't the place for me. We would call this spiritual bullying. If I had time, I'd expose that for you a little bit more and show you how, how we actually do bully people in church. We practice bully here too. It's not just in schools. Grown folk do more bullying than anybody else. Yeah. But look what it says. It says they, they wouldn't dare to associate themselves. However, 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 look at the text. However, people held them in high esteem. That means their reputation was so that they realized, you know what? They're a little strange, but there is something spiritual happening in that setting. And we don't want to bother them. They at least gained the respect of the saved and the unsaved. Because of what God was doing through them, they were making noise in the public sector with their strong reputation. Who are we intimidating? Not just reputation. But look at verse 14 and 15. Their reproduction. Look at what God did. They were growing through obedience through the word and they were growing through saturating themselves in the word. Look at verse 14. Look at the text. And all the more believers in the Lord. So Luke would say, if you want people in your church, you want people who believe in the Christ. Not, not just pew dwellers. Uh, it's Here's a tragic statistic. Let's say that 3,000 people come to your church on Sunday morning. They say that the average, somewhere between 5 to 8% come to Bible study in the week. So that means that if I'm lucky, if I see 3,000 people on Sunday morning, I may see between 100 and 150 of those people at Bible study. What happened to the other 2,900? If I'm raising an army, I only got 100 good soldiers. Where the rest of my army? And if they don't leave, I didn't sign for them to take that leave. But look at the rationality of that. And that's average. And that's true. Because we see an average of 8 to 10 people here in this church on Wednesday nights for Bible study. That's true. But yet we want to raise spiritual giants. We want a vibrant congregation. But you're not doing no work. You're not coming to learn what it means to be a disciple. I know you're going to say, I look at this study, I go to that study, I hear this preach, I hear that preacher. Yeah, but that's not where you serve. It's not among the people. See, they don't have to deal with you. That Bible study on television, what you hear on the radio, they ain't got to deal with you on week, during the week on Sunday. Or you in that ministry, or when you come to the meeting, they don't have to deal with you. But those of us who got to deal with you, and we get better at loving one another when we stay among each other. We get a chance to nurture. That's why the number one reason why people come back to a church when they visit is because they sense being relational. So that's why when people come visit us and we call and don't give them some love to show them we appreciate, listen, do you realize how many people pass churches to come to this church? Do you realize how many people come past churches to come to this church? Now, people who visit might be right around the corner, but do you realize how many other churches they could have visited but decided to come here for whatever reason? 
And the one thing we can do to at least we can get a better chance of them coming back is to appreciate their presence and be relational. And that's not just a pastor's job. Because I can hear you now. Well, if the pastor do it, then we'll do it. You a lie. This doesn't say if the pastor does it only. This says each one of us. And I won't let you put that burden on me. No, I ain't mad, but I'm good. I won't let you put that burden on me. Because when we stand before God for judgment, I ain't taking responsibility for your failure to get up and to greet in a Christ-like love. Uh-uh. I'm going to take responsibility for me. And guess what? You won't be able to take responsibility for me. You will do it for yourself. We got to create an atmosphere. When I'm talking about evangelism, I'm going to talk about more, more of in the weeks to come. We got to change the atmosphere of our church. We got to start really acting, but genuinely acting like we care about some folk. Not putting on a facade. It ain't going to do no good. There it is right there in the text. Because of their love, they were reproducing. Look what the text says. The more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Constantly. Constantly. And if that ain't deep, look what it says. To the extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on the cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow. That's a faith move. See, now remember, they didn't have access to Innova or Kaiser like we do. So they don't have that facility to help them with their illnesses. So they had to bring, I'm going to give you a theory. It's just a theory, but I want you to think about it real good. They had to bring those that were sick to a space where they believed healing could take place. And they said, because of what's happening in the church, if nothing more than Peter's shadow caught me, at least I can get my healing. See, watch the progression of man. We first began as theist beings because we realized we didn't have access to the technology we have now, so we trusted God for everything. Then we transitioned to humanism, which means that we start to learn more about our ability and we were able to create opportunities where now we had technology to help us realize that we can save people genetically as well as medically. Now we are in what's called dataism. Dataism means, notice, no matter what we do, we don't do anything now without first gathering the data. Why? Because the data tells us what previously the humanists did in terms of gathering all the people and realizing, well, among this population, XYZ of them had XYZ disease, therefore XYZ of them experienced certain healings, and XYZ of them did not. We need the data. The data helps us realize we don't have to go through and reinvent the wheel. The same is happening in church. See, we use, watch this. I'm going to show you how simple it is in church. Remember, when we grew up in church, we never taught about evangelism. We never had no children's church. We never had no youth ministry outside of BTU. Uh, we didn't have no uh, cancer support ministry. We didn't have no men's ministry. We didn't have no women's ministry. Uh, we didn't have no toy ministry. We didn't have no feet ministry. We didn't have none of that. We just came to church, and we brought somebody with us. Now, we're in an age of data. And the data says, if you don't have X, Y, Z in your church, your chances of retaining or growing is X, Y, Z. So we build our ministries now based on data. What eight, let's say what 10 churches in the same category we are, what those 10 churches reflect is how we develop the data. And we say, well, if nine out of those 10 churches have a men's ministry, then we probably need to have one. Never realizing, even if you have one, the base is to go back to the word of God and to discover what it means to be a man. I think that's a little deep for you. I shouldn't have went there. But anyway, uh, here's, here's what I'm trying to tell you. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. We are in an age where we have such technological advancement that if we would look at verse 15, 
People bring people to church believing that by faith, the God that we serve still bypasses the technology at times. And the passing of the shadow was nothing more than us simply saying, if we just believe by faith that God will pass by us. And if I can just get his shadow. So that text is a reflection of Moses' dissension from Sinai as he goes to God and says, show me your face. And God says, I can't show you my face. If I did, you can't live. But I tell you what I will do. I'll let you get a shadow of my backside. And so as Moses descends from the heaven, he gets a chance to see the backside of God. But even that is so powerful. Moses has to put a veil over his face when he comes down from the mountain. Joshua says, "Woo! where in the world have you been? And the glory of God is all around Moses. And that's what that text is trying to tell us when you are on one accord go back to verse 12 I will give you my glory and if people just walk by that's how you reproduce I would tell you about I don't have time now but that how churches grow whether it's real growth rapid growth realistic growth regular growth but in this text, it seems to be they were experiencing rapid growth based on the Spirit of God. So they were reproducing. Here's the final point. And then in verse 16, they were restoring people. The church was experiencing restoration. Look at what verse 16 says. And also the people from the cities and the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming to get, watch this. They were affecting their neighboring community. They were coming together bringing people who were sick, afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. One reason the church lacks power uh, to affect the community is because they don't exercise the power that they have in the church. Because watch this. When people are hurting and when your context is bringing about restoration of people, they don't care if you're black, white, green, purple, Baptist, Presbyterian, Muslim, Buddhist. They don't care. They want healing. Racism is alive because we make it alive. See, we keep racism alive because it keeps, it keeps, keeps us categorizing people so that there will one who will be Superior, while another we hope will be inferior. And by doing that, here's one of the most beautiful things that happen is interracial marriages. I'm going to tell you why it makes it beautiful. Because it defies, it defies the stereotypical of black or white, brown or gray. It creates the idea of not just ecumenicalism, but union. That's, that's the interesting thing about interracial marriages. And they have to experience a great deal of challenge for people who have their stereotypical insults. But they persevere. And in persevering, they can raise beautiful, powerful children who have the dignity to claim themselves from diverse heritages. See, what makes the church so powerful is it can't really declare itself as black, white, European, Asian. It has to declare itself as a multicultural context because God saves Jew, Gentile, accidental, occidental. He saves all people. So we use terms like black church, white church, Asian church, Hispanic church. We do that for the sole sake of identifying, uh, I, I want to say it's called hegemonity. You know, we identify with that specific group. But when we talk about heaven, I sure hope there ain't a black church on the corner of uh, Grace and Mercy Boulevard, and there's a white church on the corner of Justification and Sanctification Boulevard. I hope that's not the case. And singing in a choir. One of the most glorious things of witnesses is an ecumenical choir where all faces, brown, black, green, purple, all races, all religions. Watch this. And I said it, religions. I said it. 
Because once again, we create categories of Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Church of God in Christ, Muslims, Buddhists, Confucianism. We create those categories. It helps us identify with the specific. But when it comes to God, I, got, I just got a gut feeling. I just got a gut feeling. I could be wrong. I won't find out until I get to heaven. By that time, it wouldn't matter anyway because I'm already there. Rather than right or wrong, it doesn't matter. Watch this. There are going to be some people there that we never thought was going to actually be there. I believe we're going to look at them and say, what? You made it? Yeah. Man, I would have never thought you would be here, man. Yeah, I'm here, man. But you know what? I never thought you'd make it here either. Man, as much stuff as you did, yeah. But as much stuff as you did, I can't believe the Lord saved you. I can't believe the Lord saved you. What? But you didn't believe in Jesus like... Yeah, I did. I just didn't believe the way you did. Needless to say, we have much work to do. Save us, Lord, this day that we won't self-destruct.